Chapter Nineteen of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Nineteen, The Secret. Knight and Annesley had a suit of rooms on the ground floor in what was known as the New Wing at Valley House. On the floor above were the rooms occupied by Lord and Lady Annesley Seton this wing was a dreadful anachronism shocking to architects for it had been tacked on to the house in the eighteenth century by some member of the family who had made the grand tour and fallen in love with italy seeing no reason why a classic addition with a high-pillared lodger should be unsuitable to a house in england built in elizabethan and jacobean days he had made it fortunately it was so situated as not to be seen from the front of the building or anywhere else except from the one side which it deformed and there a more artistic grandson had hidden the abortion as much as possible by planting a grove of beautiful stone pines as for the wing itself the interior was the most livable part of the house and with the modern improvements put in to please the american bride before her fortune vanished it had become charming within annesley's bedroom and her husband's adjoining had long windows opening out on the loggia and looking between tall straight trunks of umbrella pines toward the distant sea it was late before she could slip away to her own quarters for she had been wanted for bridge an amusement which she secretly thought the last refuge for the mentally destitute she had told her maid not to sit up and she was thankful to close the door of the small corridor or vestibule which led into the suit knowing that until night came she would be alone she wanted him to come and meant to wait it did not matter how long until they could have that talk she wished for yet dreaded intensely meanwhile however it was good to have a few minutes in which to compose her mind to decide whether she should begin or accept night to do so and how she could frankly let him see her state of mind without seeming too harsh too relentless to the man who had given her happiness with both hands, the only real happiness she had ever known. She sat for a while in the boudoir, thinking that night might come soon, before she began to undress. There was a dying glow of coal and logs in the fireplace, but staring into the rosy mouse brought no inspiration. She could not concentrate her thoughts on the scene which must presently be enacted. They would go straggling wearily to other scenes already acted, even as far back as that hour at the Savoy, when a young man who looked to her like the hero of a novel begged to sit at her table. He still seemed as much as ever like the hero of a novel in which he had splendidly made her the heroine. But it was not a pleasant chapter she had to read now. It reminded her too intensely of the mystery surrounding the hero, and forced her to realize that stories of real life have not always happy endings. But ours must! she said to herself springing up unable to rest nothing can break our love and while we have that we have everything she could no longer sit still and going into her bedroom she peeped through the door into knight's bedroom beyond it was dark as she expected to find it for she had been almost sure that she would have heard him if he had entered the vestibule returning to her own rooms she pulled back the sea-blue curtains which covered the large window looking on to the loggia the sky was silver-white, with moonlight between the black stems of the tall pines, and a flood of radiance poured into the room. 
It was so beautiful and bright, bringing with it so heavenly a sense of peace, that the girl could not bear to draw the curtains again. She began slowly to undress by moonlight, and the faint red glow in the fireplace. Her first act was to recover the blue diamond ring and to drop it with shrinking fingers into the jewel case on her dressing table. Taking off her dinner frock, she put on a white silk gown, which turned her into a pale spirit flitting hither and thither in the silver dusk. Still night had not come. She pulled out the four grey tortoise-shell pins which held up her hair, and let it tumble over her shoulders. As she began to twist it into one heavy plate, she walked to the window and stood looking out. It seemed to her that the black trunks and outstretched branches of the trees were like prison bars across the moonlight. She wished she had not had that thought, but as it persisted, a figure moved behind the bars, the figure of a man. At first she was startled, for it was very late, long after one o'clock, but as the man came nearer she recognized him, although the light was at his back. It was night, and as though her thought called to him, he stopped suddenly, pausing on the lawn not far from the lodger. She could not see his face, but it seemed that he was staring straight up at her window. He has been walking in the moonlight, thinking things over just as I have in here, the girl told herself. Surely he could see her. But no, he turned, and was riding away with his head down, when she knocked sharply and impulsively on the pane. Hearing the sound, yet not knowing whence it came, he stopped again, and so gave Annesley time to open the window. "'Night!' she called softly. Then he came straight to her across the strip of lawn and up the two steps that led to the lodger. She met him on the threshold and saw his face deadly pale in the moonlight. Perhaps it was only an effect of light, but she thought that he looked tired, even ill. Still he did not speak. "'Night! You almost frightened me,' she said. "'I was afraid for an instant you might be—might be—' A thief, he finished for her. Or a ghost, she amended. Weren't you coming in? No, he said. I hadn't thought of it. Do you want... Shall I come in? Yes, please do. I... I've been waiting for you. I'm sorry. I hoped you'd have gone to bed. But I might have known you wouldn't. As she retreated from the window, he followed her, as if reluctantly, into the room. "'Shall I draw the curtains?' he asked. There was weariness in his voice, as in his face. Annesley's heart went out to her beloved sinner with even more tenderness than before. "'No, let's talk in the moonlight,' she answered. "'Oh, Knight, I am glad you've come. I began to think you never would.' "'Did you?' That's not strange, for I was saying to myself that same thing. What same thing? I don't understand. That I, well, that I never ought to come to you again. She sank down on a low sofa near the window, and looked up to him as he stood tall and straight, seeming to tower over her like one of the pine trees out there under the moon. Oh, night, she faltered. It's not... So bad as that. Isn't it? He caught her up, sharply, eagerly. Do you mean what you say? Isn't it, to you, as bad as that? 
No, no, she soothed him. You see, I love you. That's all the difference, isn't it? You've been everything to me. You've made my life. That used to be so gray, so bright, so sweet. Only the blackest thing, oh, an unimaginably blackest thing, could come between us, or... Before she could finish, he was on his knees at her feet, holding her in his arms, crushing her against his breast, soft and yielding in her light dressing-gown, with her flowing hair. "'My God, honestly, it's too good to be true,' he said, his breath hot on her face, as he kissed her cheek, her hair, her eyes. "'You can forgive me? I thought you'd go away. I thought you'd refuse to let me come near you.' I was walking out there wondering how to make it easy for you, whether I could get rid of myself without scandal. She had been sure that he must have repented long ago, and that it would hurt him dreadfully to have her find out the thing he had done, but she had not dreamed that his self-abasement would be so complete. She put her arms about him as he held her and pressed his head against her neck, the dear, smooth, black head which she loved better than ever in this rush of pardoning pity. Dearest, she whispered, never, never think or speak of such a dreadful way out. Of course it was horribly wrong, and of course it was a great shock to me, but you might have known from my doing what I could to help that I didn't hate you. I said to myself there must be some excuse, some big excuse, and now, if you only wouldn't mind telling me about it from the beginning, I believe it would be the best way for us both. Then I might understand. You are God's own angel, Anita, he said in a choked voice. You don't know how I've learned to love you better than anything in this world, or the next. If there is a next, I knew you were a saint, but I didn't know that saints forgave men like me. Shall I really tell you from the beginning? You'll listen and bear it? It's a long story. Annesley did not see why the story of his buying the historic stolen diamond and giving it to her should be so long, even with its explanations, but she did not say this. I don't care how long it is, she told him, but you will be tired, down on your knees. I couldn't tell my story to you in any way except on my knees, he answered, and the new humility of the man she had loved half fearfully for his daring, his defiant way of facing life, almost hurt, as his sudden passion had startled the girl. I hardly know how to begin, he said. Perhaps it had better be with my father and mother, because it was the tragedy of their lives that chained mine. He was silent for a moment, as if thinking. Then he drew a long breath, as a man does when he is ready to take a plunge into deep water. My mother was a Russian. Her people were noble, but that didn't keep them from going to Siberia. She was brought to America by a man and woman who'd been servants in her family. She was very young, only fifteen. Her name was Michaela. I'm named after her, Michael. The three had only money enough to be allowed to land as immigrants and then get out west, though her people had been rich. He paused a moment for a sigh. She and the servants, they passed as her father and mother, found work in Chicago. My father was a lawyer there. He was an Englishman, you know, 
I've told you that before, but he thought his profession was overstocked at home, so he tried his luck on the other side. The old Russian chap was hurt in the factory where he worked, and that's the way my father, whose name was Robert Donaldson, got to know my mother. There was a question of compensation, and my father conducted the case. He won it. And he won a wife, too. She was nineteen when I was born. Father was getting on, but they were poor and had a hard time to make ends meet. They worshipped each other and worshipped me. You can think whether I adored them. Mother was the most beautiful creature you ever saw. Everyone looked at her. I used to notice that when I was a wee chap, walking with my hand in hers. When I was ten and going to school, my father had a bad illness. Rheumatic fever. We got hard up while he was sick, and then came a letter from mother, from Russia. Some distant relations in Moscow had had her traced by detectives. It seemed there was quite a lot of money which ought to come to her, and if she would go to Russia and prove who she was, she could get it. If father had been well and making enough for us all, he'd never have let her go, but he was weak and anxious about the future, so she took things in her own hands and went, without waiting for yes or no, or anything except to find a woman who'd look after father and me while she was gone. Well, she never came back. Can you guess what became of her? he asked huskily. She died? Annesley asked, forgetting in her interest which grew with the story to wonder what the history of Knight's childhood and his parents' troubles had to do with a Melindor diamond. She died before my father could find her, but not for a long time. God, what a time of agony for her. Things happened I can't tell you about. We heard nothing. After a letter from the ship and a cable from Roscoe with the two words, Well, love. For a while father waited and tried not to be too anxious, but after a time he telegraphed, and then again and again. No answer. He went nearly mad. Before he was well enough to travel, he borrowed money and started for Russia to look for her. I stayed in Chicago and kept on going to school. The friends who took care of me made me do that, or thought so. But when I could, I played truant. I was in a restless state. I remember how I felt as if it were yesterday. Nothing seemed real, except my father and mother. I thought about them all the time. I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't study. I couldn't bear to sit at a desk. I picked up some queer pals in these months. Or they picked me up. I suppose that was the beginning of the end. I think while he was away, finding out terrible, unspeakable things, my father forgot about me, or else he didn't realize I was big enough to mind. He never wrote. When he came back after eleven months, he was an old man, with gray hair. I'll never forget the night he came and how he told me about mother. It was a moonlight night, like this, with no light in the room. It was the last night of my childhood. As the man talked, he had lifted his head from the soft pillow of the girl's white neck and was looking into her eyes, his face close to hers. Annesley was not thinking about the diamond. For a long time, night went on slowly. Father could not trace my mother. He expected to find the relations who had sent her word about the legacy, but they were gone. Nobody could tell where. Nobody wanted to speak of them. They seemed afraid. Father went to the British and American embassies, no use. But at last he got to know, in subterranean ways, 
that mother hadn't realized how dangerous it is to speak your mind in Russia. She'd left there before she was sixteen. She had said things about her father and mother and what she thought of the ruling powers. And that same night, she'd been in Moscow two days, she and her relatives disappeared. It leaked out through a member of the secret police that she could have been saved by her beauty. Someone high up offered to get her free. But she preferred another fate. She was sent to Siberia, where her father and mother had gone, and had died years before. My father met a man who had seen her on the way as he was coming back. She was only just alive. The man was sure she couldn't have lived more than a few weeks. Yet father wouldn't give up. He went after her. But what's the use of going on? He found the place where she had died, which ends that part of the story, as a story. Only it didn't end for us. It filled our hearts with bitterness. We wanted revenge, yet my father was too good a man to take it when his chance came. His conscience held him back, but he talked, talked like an anarchist, a man out to fight and smash all the hypocritical institutions of society. If it hadn't been for me, he'd have killed himself in Siberia, where his wife had died a martyr, and it would have been well for him if he had. Because of the wild way he talked when suspicion of fraud was thrown on him by a partner, the full public believed in his guilt. He died in prison when I was fifteen. And I swore to punish the beast of a world that had killed all I loved. I swore I'd make that my life's work, and I have. But, God, I've punished myself too at last. I'm punished through you, because I've fallen in love with you, Anita. And for your sake, I'd give the years that may be in front of me, all the time, but one day to be glad in, if I could blot out the past. Maybe, the girl faltered, maybe you're too hard on yourself. I can't believe that you, who have been so good to me, could have been very bad to others. If I could hope you wouldn't be too hard on me, that's all I care for now he cried passionately. You remember my saying that night in the taxi that the worst I'd ever done was to try and pay back a great wrong and take revenge on society? If I could hope you meant what you said about understanding, I'd tell you the story of that revenge. I did mean it, Knight. My love will help me to understand. You make me believe in a God, for surely only God could have sent such an angel as you in my life. In a way, I haven't deceived you about myself, for I warned you I was a bad man. But when I think of the night we met and the trick I played on you, it makes me sick. I thought you'd loathe me if you ever found out. But I didn't intend to let you find out. It was to be a dead secret forever, like the rest. Yet if I tell you what my life has been, you'll have to know that part too. If I kept it back, you might think it worse than it was. A trick? echoed Annesley. Yes, a trick to interest you, to make you like and want to help me. Besides, it was to be a test of your courage and presence of mind. If you hadn't those qualities, you'd have been a failure from my point of view. You see, I hadn't had time to fall in love with you then. And I wanted you for a helpmate in the literal sense of the word. It seems a pretty sordid sense, looking back from where we've got to now. But that was my scheme, a mean, cowardly scheme. 
and it's thanks to you and your blessed dearness I see it in its true light. Do you begin to understand, Anita, knowing something of what my life has been? Or must I explain? I am afraid you must explain, she answered in a small voice, like a child's. She felt suddenly weak and sick, as if she might collapse in the man's arms. It was as if some terrible weapon wrapped round and half-hidden in folds of velvet were lifted above her head to strike her down. She shrank from the blow, yet asked for it. Already she guessed dimly that Knight's confession was to be very different from and far more terrible than anything she had expected. "'I was the man whose advertisement you answered.' The man who wrote you the stiff letter in the handwriting you didn't like. Signed Ann Smith. Oh. The word broke from her in a moan. Darling, have I lost you if I go on? You must go on, she cried out sharply. For both our sakes you must go on. I know how it looks to you, and it was while... But I couldn't be sure when I advertised that an angel would answer to my call, and what a brute I should be to deceive her. I thought the sort of girl who'd reply to an ad for a wife would be fair game, that I should be giving her an equivalent of what she'd give me. For my business that I had to carry out in England, I needed a wife of another sort from any woman I knew, or could get to know, in an ordinary way. She had to be of good birth and education, nice-looking and pleasant-mannered, if possible with highly placed friends or relatives. Money didn't matter. I had enough, or would have. I got a lot of answers, but the only one that seemed good was yours. I felt nearly certain you were the woman I wanted, so I rigged up a plan. You know how it worked out. Maybe I'm stupid, Annesley said, dry-lipped. I don't understand yet. Why, I thought the thing over, and it seemed to me that married life, if it came to that, would be easier for both if the man could make some sort of appeal to the love of romance in a girl. Well, she wouldn't think the man who had to get the right sort of wife by advertising much of a figure of romance. So the idea came to me of... of starting two personalities. I wrote you a stiff, precise sort of letter in a disguised business hand, making an appointment at the Savoy. When that was done, the writer went out of your life. He just ceased to exist, except that he sat behind a big screen of newspaper and watched for a girl in grey and purple, wearing a white rose, to pass through the foyer. That was his way of finding out if she'd suit. Jove, how beastly it does sound put into words, and confess to you. But you said I must go on. Yes, go on. Annesley breathed. You were about one hundred times better than my highest hopes, and seeing what you were, I was glad I thought out that plan. Even then it was borne in on me that it wouldn't be long before I found myself falling in love if I had the luck to secure you, and from that minute the business turned into exciting play for me, just as I meant to make it for you. I let you wait for a while, but if you'd showed any signs of vanishing, I'd have stepped up. I'd got a trick ready for that emergency. 
but I hoped you'd follow instructions and go to the restaurant. Once there, I was sure the head-waiter'd persuade you to sit down at the table, and the rest went exactly as I planned. The two men we called the watchers used to be Wadwell actors, did a turn together, and their specialty was lightning changes. Their makeups, even at short notice, could fool Sherlock Holmes. Even though you despise me for it, Anita, you must admit it was a smart way to make you take an interest and prove your character. Lord, but you stood the test. I wouldn't have given you up at any price then, even if I hadn't begun falling in love. I saw how good you were, and in that taxi going to Torrington Square I felt mean as dirt for tricking you. But of course I had to go on as I'd begun. At first I thought it was luck, tumbling into the same house with Ruthman Smith. But now I see it was the devil's luck. If it hadn't been for Ruthman Smith, I might have gone on living the part I played. You need never have known the truth. And I swear to you, honestly, I'd made up my mind, after finishing off my work with the men who are with me, that I'd run straight for the rest of my days. The business was making me sick, for being close to your goodness threw a light into dark places. By heaven, Anita, it does seem hard, just as I was near to being the man you thought me, that that dried-up Carmachan, Ruthman Smith, should call my hand and make me show you the man I was. But I can't help seeing there's a kind of, what they call, poetical justice in it, the blow coming from him. I've always been like that, seeing both sides of a thing, even when I wanted to see only one. But if you can see both sides, you will make the good grow as the bright side of the moon grows and turns the dark side to gold. Can you do that, do you think, Anita? Can you see any excuse for me in going against the world to pay it out for going against me and mine? If you've been piecing bits of evidence together since Ruthman Smith spoke, you'll have remembered that only heirlooms and things insured by or belonging to public companies have been taken. No poor people have been robbed. And except in the case of Mrs. Ellsworth, where I wanted to see her paid out for her treatment of you. Robbed! Catching the word, Annesley heard none of those that followed. Robbed! Oh, it's not possible, you mean? Her voice broke. With both hands against his breast, she pushed him off, and struggled to rise to tear herself loose from him. But he would not let her go. What's the matter? How have I hurt you worse than you were hurt already by finding out? He appealed to her, his arms like a band of steel round her shuddering body. When you heard the truth about the diamond, it was the same as if you'd heard everything, wasn't it? You guessed Ruthman Smith suspected. Someone must have told him. Madalena, perhaps. You guessed he had some trick to play, and in the quietest, cleverest way you checkmated him, without hint or help from anyone. You saved me from ruin, and not only me, but others. And on top of all that, when I hoped for nothing more from you, you promised me forgiveness. That's what I understood. Was I mistaken? I was mistaken, she answered almost coldly, then broke down with one agonized sob. I thought, oh, what good is it now to tell you what I thought? You must tell me. I thought you had bought the blue diamond, knowing that it had been stolen, but wanting it so much you didn't care how you got it. I didn't dream that you were a that I was 
What? A thief! And a cheat! My God! And now you know I'm both. You hate me, Anita? You must, or you wouldn't throw those words at me like stones. Let me go! she panted, pushing him from her again with trembling, ice-cold hands. He obeyed instantly. The band of steel that had held her fell apart. She stumbled up from the low sofa, and trying to pass him as he knelt, she would have fallen if he had not sprung to his feet and caught her. But recovering herself, she turned away quickly and almost ran to a chair in front of the dressing-table not far off. There she flung herself down and buried her face on her bare arms. Night followed, to stand staring in stunned silence at the boat head and shaking shoulders. He could hear the ticking of a small, nervous-sounding clock on the mantelpiece. It was like the beating of a heart that must soon break. At last, when the tickling had gone on unbearably long, he spoke. "'Anita, you called me a cheat,' he said. "'I suppose you mean that I cheated you by playing the hero that night at the Savoy, "'and stealing your sympathy and help under false pretenses, "'that I've been steadily cheating you and your friends every day since. "'That's true, in a way. "'Or it was at first, but lately it's not been the same sort of cheating. "'It began to be the real thing with me. "'I mean, I felt it in me to be the real thing.' As for the other name you gave me, thief, I'm not exactly that, not a thief who steals with his own hands, though I dare say I'm as bad. If I haven't stolen, I've shown others the most artistic way to steal. I've shown men and women how to make stealing a fine art, and I've been in with them in the game. Indeed, it was my game. Madalina de Santiago and the two men you knew first as the Watchers, then as Torrance and Morello, now as Sherrington and Char, have been no more than the pawns I used, or rather, they've been my cat's paws. There is only one other man at the head of the show besides me, and that is one whose name I can't give away, even to you. But he's a great man, a kind of financial Napoleon, a great artist, too. He doesn't call himself a thief. He's honored by society in Europe and America, yet what I've done in comparison to what he's done is like a brook to the size of the ocean. He has a picture gallery and a private museum which are famous, but there's another gallery of pictures and another museum which nobody except himself has ever seen. His real life, his real joy are in them. Most of the masterpieces and treasures of this world which have disappeared are safe in that hidden place which I've helped to fill. That man has no regrets. He revels in what he calls his secret orchard. He thinks I ought to be proud of what I've done for him, and so I was once. I came here and brought the other people over to England to work for him. Not that that fact will whitewash me in your eyes, not that I wasn't working for myself too, and not that I'm trying to make more excuses by explaining this. But I'd like you to understand, at least for the sake of your own pride, that you haven't been cheated into loving and living with a common thief. Does that make it hurt less? No, she said in a strange tone which made her voice sound like that of an old woman. That doesn't make it hurt less. It makes no difference. I think nothing can ever make any difference. My life is over. 
"'Don't, for God's sake, say that. Don't force me to feel a murderer,' he cried out sharply. "'There's nothing else to say. I wish I could die tonight.' "'If one of us is to die,' he said, "'let it be me. "'If you hadn't happened to see me "'and call me in when I was under the trees "'bidding good-bye to your window, "'by this time I might have found a way out of the difficulty "'without any scandal or trouble to you, whatever. "'No one would have known that it wasn't an accident. "'I should have known. "'But if you had, it would have been a relief. "'No. "'Because I... I hadn't heard the truth. I didn't understand at all. I thought you had done one unscrupulous thing. I didn't dream your whole life was what it is. I loved you as much as ever. It would have broken my heart if you... But now that you don't love me, it wouldn't break your heart. I don't seem to have any heart, Annesley sighed. It feels as if it had crumbled to dust. But it would break my life if you ended yours. If anything could be worse than what is, it would be that. Very well. You can rid yourself of me in another way, the man answered. You can denounce me, give me up to justice. If you hand over the Malindor diamond to Ruthman Smith and tell him how you got it. You must know I wouldn't do that. Why not? Because I couldn't it needn't spoil your life no one could blame you i would tell the story of how i deceived you you could free yourself get a divorce don't the girl cut him short i'm not thinking of myself i'm thinking of you i can't love you again and i wouldn't if i could but now that i know you're a different man the one i love doesn't exist and never did Yet you've told me your secret, and I'm bound to keep it. I don't need to stop and reflect about that. But as for what's to become of me, and how we're to manage not to let people guess that everything's changed, I don't know. I must think. I must think all tonight until tomorrow. Perhaps by that time I can decide. Now, I beg of you to go and leave me. This moment. I can't bear any more and live. He stood looking at her, but she turned her head away with a petulant gesture of repulsion, and lest her eyes might feel the call of his, she covered them with her hands. Her hopelessness, her loathing of him, enclosed her like a wall of ice. So, the dream's over, he said. This woman to this man, what a farce, what a tragedy. When she looked up again, he had gone and the door between their rooms was shut. The moon no longer lit the high window. With night's going, darkness fell. End of chapter 19